We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, going uh, through uh, Matthew chapter 2, looking at the account of the birth of Jesus from the book of Matthew this morning. And I just want to take a brief moment to pray and ask God that he would give us his help as we think about his word this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We are grateful that you have made known to us who you are and what you are like. And you have made known to us your plan to save sinners through the birth of Jesus, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. We pray, Lord, as we remember these important times in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, that it would be more than a reflection on the tradition of Christmas celebrations, but rather, God, your Holy Spirit might do a work on our heart to make us more like our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'm just going to read this one verse uh, for us uh, to get started. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So look at that first sentence. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, I really want you to, to think clearly about how God works, because how God works is very different than how we work. So you might be thinking about an occasion in your life where something happened to you, maybe something unexpected, and you might tell the story to friends, and you might begin that story by saying, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. When God does things, it's never what happened to God, it's what he had planned to do from the beginning. So when the Bible tells us the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, it's not telling us what happened to God and how he worked out his plan. It's telling us how God happened, what his plan was from the beginning of time. Here's how the birth of Christ took place, because this has been the plan for all of eternity. God doesn't stumble into events. God creates events. Events don't happen to God. God happens to uh, circumstances. And so what we're going to do this morning as we look at how God brought about the birth of God the Son, Jesus, into this world, we're going to look at one person in particular, and that person is Joseph. And I want us to think about Joseph's role in the birth of Jesus Christ, given the fact that God had it happen in this way. So if you have a role in something that's already pre-planned, your question is going to be, how do I fit into the plan? How do I fit into what's already happening? I'm not trying to figure out what to do, I'm trying to figure out what the plan is so I know how I fit. God has a plan about the birth of Jesus, what it's about, what it's for, and how it ought to take place. Joseph's purpose is to figure out how does he fit into that plan. And how do you do that? And it's the title of the message. If you look at your worship folder, we have a place for you to take notes if you like. How he fits is through humble faithfulness. Humble faithfulness. Let me read verses 18 through 25 of Matthew chapter 1, if you don't mind. We'll begin in verse 19 since we already read verse 18. Verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, take Mary, or do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Humble faithfulness in the life of Joseph. Joseph seeks on behalf of his fiancée Mary to show her compassion while at the same time maintaining his view of justice and uprightness. That is, he is engaged to Mary. It's a covenantal engagement, meaning they're not married, and yet it is intended that they should be, and he discovers she is pregnant, and so therefore he's going to put her away, break the engagement, the betrothal, but to do so quietly and in a non-public manner as a way of uh, maintaining his sense of uprightness while at the same time uh, having some compassion on Mary. Pay attention to what happens. Her husband was thinking about this. Who had he told? No one. He was pondering these things. He was formulating a plan. Have you ever done this? I don't know when you formulate your plan. Might be in the shower. Might be while you're driving your car. Might be while somebody's talking to you. He considered these things. That's a mental thing. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Now, that would be startling to me. I'm just thinking about an idea, and all of a sudden, an angel tells me not to do what I'm thinking about. I would say to the angel, get out of my head. That's for me. You stay out of my thoughts. But the angel knows exactly what he's thinking about because God knows everything, even what's going on in our minds. The angel does not want... Uh, Joseph to compromise his uprightness or his sense of fidelity to righteous behavior. Rather, the angel makes clear there is no need for him to uh, abandon his marriage to Mary because the child that is conceived in her is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning she was not unfaithful to God or Joseph. There's no need for him to uh, divorce her for a sense of justice or uh, because of impropriety because there wasn't any. And so he can feel free uh, to marry her in spite of the fact that she is pregnant. Her pregnancy is not the result of impropriety. Joseph obeys. I want to make note as we make our ways through Matthew chapter 1 and 2, how many words Joseph speaks. Let me do the math for you because it's easy. Do you know how many it is? It's zero words. None of his words are recorded in the Scripture. Nowhere do we find out anything about what Joseph has to say or what he has to think other than his thought that perhaps he should divorce Mary. But we learn a lot about Joseph, not because of what he said, because we don't know what he said, but because of what, she, what he did. Verse 24 of Matthew 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, here's the key words. What is it? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded. Joseph seeks to show compassion to Mary while being righteous. The angel's instructions to Joseph are unexpected. Even though the angel's instructions to Joseph were unexpected, he obeyed without argument. The angel said, Mary, Mary, uh, Mary, and Joseph did as he was told. 
Just like that. There is no space in the passage between the angel telling him what to do and Joseph doing what, he t- what he's supposed to. Joseph did exactly what the angel told him to, even though it is clear his reputation would suffer harm. He saw what God was doing through the birth of Jesus the Messiah as more important than his reputation. Because why else, why else would he do what he did? There is no reason, there's no earthly reason for Joseph to marry uh, Mary unless Jesus is who the angel says he is. Who does the angel say Jesus is? Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Joseph understands from the angel, this is the Messiah, and he has come to redeem mankind from sin and death. Knowing that, it is no longer about Joseph. The question now is for Joseph, given the fact that we know from, from Matthew 1.18, the birth of Christ took place in this way. Joseph now, now knows which way the birth of the Messiah is occurring, and now he has to answer this question, how do I fit into what God is up to right now? And the way he fits is through humble faithfulness and costly obedience. Humble faithfulness through costly obedience. Think of a couple of other people in the Bible who had God give them commands. I think of one person in particular. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Moses. Everybody familiar with this guy? God shows up to him in a burning bush that's not being consumed. That's cool. God speaks to him out loud. Not like Joseph. Joseph, it was a dream. Have you ever woke up from a dream and said, wow, what am I supposed to do with that? And then you sort of write it off. Well, it was just a dream. Joseph didn't do that. Moses didn't have a dream. He saw a bush burning. He said, man, I should check that out. That's weird. He gets close to the bush. It starts talking to him. He realizes it's God. And God says, you should go to Egypt and save my people. And what does Moses say? He's not like Joseph. Moses says a lot. Which is funny, given the fact that his primary excuse for not going is he's not good at talking. He's really good at arguing, but not good at talking. I don't want to go. I killed a guy. They're going to oppress me. How, what if they don't listen to me? What am I supposed to call you? Wham, wham, wham. It's just, it's unending. In fact, the Bible even tells us God gets angry with Moses in that moment. And finally, he said, look, your brother, your brother Aaron is coming. Would you go with this guy? And then Moses said, fine, I'll go with him. Wait a few months. Then all of a sudden they're out in Egypt in, their middle of the, in the middle of the wilderness. And the people are saying, oh, we want a hamburger. We're so tired of this manna. It's so nasty. We want some meat. And so Moses goes to God and prays this beautiful spiritual prayer. I'm being sarcastic. The sarcasm light should be illuminating. Lord, I've got an idea. Why don't you kill me? No, that's his whole prayer. Lord, if you're going to treat me this way, do you know what would be great? If you'd kill me now. That's, whole, that's Moses' whole prayer. I would prefer to be dead, God, than to be a part of your plan. So if you could hear my prayer, Father, I pray that upon your gracious kindness that you might smite me here in the middle of the wilderness. I mean, wonderful, right? What does Joseph do? He doesn't say a word. He just does what he's told. Costly obedience. There's another guy in the Bible you may have heard of. His name is... Jonah, he tried to take a boat to a city that's landlocked. 
That's how much he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Joseph's not like that. God gives him a dream. Marry a woman who's already pregnant. Have your reputation destroyed. Don't worry about it, Joseph, because she carries the Messiah who will bring forgiveness of sins. And Joseph says, I get to be a part of the plan to bring forgiveness through the Messiah. Sign me up. He did what he was told, and he married Mary anyway. Joseph had character. He wanted righteousness as well as compassion. But more than that, he saw that he was part of something bigger than he is. He wasn't, part, he wasn't a part of the story of Joseph. He had a bit part in the story of Jesus. And since he saw himself not as the story, but as a small part of the story of Christ, he said, sign me up, what's my part to do? Marry her even though it'll ruin my reputation? That's okay, let's get it done. Look at verse 23. All this has taken place according to the angel, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his na- and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This means the plan of God to bring the Messiah in this particular way has been going on for a very, very long time. This, this particular prophecy is written some 800 years before the, book, the, the birth of Christ. Joseph understood that his part was to join something that was started generations ago. His part was not to be a big deal, but to do what God asked because God was doing something that was a a big deal. Humble faithfulness shown through Joseph in verse 24 by when the angel said he did, and so he accomplished costly obedience. Joseph obeyed and married Mary at a cost. But now his obedience is gonna upend his life. We don't know what Joseph had planned for his life. We don't know anything about his dreams and aspirations. Joseph was a a person just like anybody else. Certainly he had grown up hoping for things, hoping for a family, hoping to have a vocation, hoping to have a place in his community. We don't know all of his dreams because we don't know anything he had to, to say, but we do know what comes next is going to turn all of that upside down and all of the, any dreams he might have had up to this point are over. Humble faithful, humble faithfulness. Next, let's look at disruptive obedience. I'm gonna read uh, Matthew chapter two, verses one through 18. It's a familiar passage, but I'm gonna read it nonetheless. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd, my people Israel. Excuse me. Then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. I don't want to give away the story. He's lying there. He doesn't want to worship After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star 
that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14. Watch close. What's it say? And he rose. Look at that. Angel says what? Rise. Go to Egypt. What's Joseph do? And he rose. Just like that. He took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Two more verses. Three more verses. Well, you said, boy, you're reading a lot of scripture. You did come to church, so. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Joseph, this humble man who has married a woman pregnant with a child that is not his, traveled to Bethlehem and now had probably been living in Bethlehem, at least according to the text, it seems like two years or less. I don't know what he was doing, but we know that Joseph was a carpenter or a stonemason or a builder, so he was a laborer. He was probably trying to keep busy with work so his family could be supported. And then suddenly one night, three foreigners, clearly powerful and wealthy, show up at his home, walk in, see his son Jesus, and worship him. That's kind of intimidating. All of a sudden, this man who was powerless in the world unimportant, meaningless by any sense of social standing in this particular place, has Magi visiting his home. Magi who just recently have kept an appointment with Herod the Great. All of a sudden, the life of Joseph is finding overlap with circles of power and influence he could not have imagined. And if, if Joseph is like any of us, he would have recognized that his life is now in a very precarious situation. Herod the Great was not a man to be trifled with. The Magi showed up and said they were looking for the king of the Jews. Pay attention to how the text reads in verses 1, 2, and 3. In the, it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the what? Herod the king. And then the Magi show up and say, we would like to know where the king of the Jews has been born. If you are Herod, what are you thinking? Are you looking for the king of the Jews? You found him. That's me. I am king of the Jews. I have built a great temple. That's what Herod would have thought. You, let's just be clear. You do not go up to Herod in Herod's town and ask to look for the king. Unless you like being dead. 
And that's precisely what Herod's plan was for these magi. He just merely kept them alive long enough to try and gain the information necessary to kill all of the people who might think Jesus is the king. The magi were protected by the Lord. He gave them a dream and told them to sneak away. And they did. Now all of a sudden, Joseph's life is in great peril because his son not only is being called the king in the realm of Herod the crazy great. I mean, this guy killed family members because they had a bad day. Sons and wives were not safe in the house of Herod the Great. His son is being worshipped by foreigners as the king of the Jews. That'll send a cold sweat down the back of any father's neck. His life is now in a precarious situation. I don't know what Joseph did other than obey the angel of the Lord, but if he is like many of us, he would have prayed, Lord, I have a prayer request. What would your prayer request have been in this moment? Lord, would you kill Herod dead on dead? Kill him quick. The Lord is going to kill Herod, but not in, his, not in Joseph's time frame. The Lord is going to take Herod's life at his time frame. Suddenly, Joseph's life is in a precarious situation. He is warned in a dream, the Bible says, to take his family to Egypt. How disruptive is that? He's not being asked to move to Central Point. He's not being asked to move to another part of the state. He's not being asked to merely hide out in some backwoods town where it would be difficult to find him. He's being told to move to a foreign country. Now, thankfully, because of the worship of the Magi, they had the funding necessary for this journey. They had frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Certainly, they wouldn't have had the, the funds necessary to to finance the ability to transplant from Bethlehem to Egypt to live for an extended period of time. But thankfully, because of the gifts of the Magi, they would have had what was necessary to live in Egypt. Let's look at the command of God to Joseph more closely. Verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. I wonder if Joseph is starting to get a little wary. An angel shows up. Oh, boy, here we go. Rise and take the child and flee to Egypt. Remain there until when? Until I tell you. Again, if I'm Joseph, thankfully I'm not, the whole story would have been ruined. Could we nail down a time frame, angel? Could we nail down a year or two? Uh, you know, should I buy a house or just take a tent? Uh, you know, is there any way, angel, of knowing precisely when I'm going to be able to come back. And the answer, of course, is, of course, you can know exactly when you're going to come back. It's when I tell you. When is that going to be? Right when I tell you. That's when it's going to be. So now Joseph has to obey, and whatever dreams he had of setting up life in Bethlehem, I mean, I can imagine what that might be like. Joseph, the adoptive father of the Messiah, now living in the city of David, thinking perhaps maybe as this child grows up and people now recognize the Messiah, son of God, son of David, ruler of the people of Israel for all of eternity, according to uh, the prophecy in 2 Samuel, he is now living in my home. Maybe Joseph in Bethlehem is going to start to have a little bit of pull, a little bit of influence. Maybe his building business is going to really grow. You could hire any carpenter, or you could hire the Messiah's dad as your carpenter. So any of these dreams he might have had for what life was going to look like 
in the hometown of David have now been flushed down the toilet. You're moving to Egypt. And you're coming back exactly who knows when. And so any dreams you had, any plans you had, they're gone. All that matters now is humble faithfulness, and Joseph obeys, even though obedience in this moment is extraordinarily disruptive. Verse 14, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Joseph doesn't chafe because the most powerful one in his home is Jesus, not him. Joseph's job isn't to fit in or to be awesome or to be amazing or to be the hero. Joseph's job is when God shows up and gives instructions to say, yes, Lord, and get it done. And right now, the the job is to take his family to Egypt and recognize that the life he might have imagined is now forfeit. And he does so because Jesus is is in his home, and Jesus is Lord. Why in the world would God command Joseph to go to Egypt? Is he just rude? Is he just mean? Is God just like playing with Joseph's mind? No, we know exactly why God did it. It says it in verse 15. He remained there, number one, until Herod was dead. Secondly, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. We're reminded again. Joseph, this story isn't about your life. This plan has been going on for generations. And there is a plan here, a purpose here. The way in which God received the most glory through the the work of the Messiah is for him to come out of Egypt by re-walking the path of the people of Israel, but instead of doing it in unfaithfulness and rebellion, to do it in perfect obedience. So that means, Joseph, for God to do his work through his son, the Messiah, you need to move your family to Egypt. And Joseph says, I'm on my way. Here we go. And he heads out. With the command to go to Egypt, Joseph's dreams are now on the back burner. Joseph's obeyed at all costs. Joseph obeyed even though it was going to be disruptive. But the question is now, what happens if the command that God gives isn't reasonable? What What if God were to give him a command that might be a little bit sketchy in its judgment? Well, let's take a look at it. Humble faithfulness. Now we're going to look at blind obedience. Look at verses 19 through uh, 23. You guessed right. We're going to read it. But when Herod died, oh, come on. Yay! Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Oh, boy, here we go. That's what Joseph's thinking. Really, thanks for coming, angel. It's been a while. Egypt's nice. Just got settled. The angel of the Lord came to Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now pay attention, the way this is worded, it's all, uh, all the ways this happens is worded the same way. Notice, the angel gives a command in verse 21, what's it say? And he rose, just like that. Next verse, the angel gives a command, the next words are a description of Joseph going, here we go, pack up. Heading out. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
He's given the command by the angel to return with his family to Egypt because the, or return with his family from Egypt because the people who were going to kill him are now dead. And then he gets home to Judea. Remember, Judea is the southern area of uh, the kingdom of Israel. It would have included the town of Bethlehem. It would have included the city of Jerusalem, the area in which he had been living before, hoping, I assume, he was to return to the town of Bethlehem. Why would he want to return to the town of Bethlehem? He's got the Messiah in his home. His presumption would be to raise his son in the city of David. So he's going to return to to the city of David with the Messiah. He discovers on his way that Herod's son Archelaus is reigning over Judea. So you traded really crazy for a little bit less crazy. And so now he's wondering, the angel told me to come back to Egypt, and the danger meeting had, reading had simply gone from a level 10, you're going to die, to a level, level 7, you'll die slow. Because Archelaus was not a great improvement over Herod the Great. So already he's understanding his, his obedience is leading him into sketchy situations. Well, angel, I thought if you told me to go home, everything would be hunky-dory and fine and safe. But he returns and finds out that Judea is not a safe place to live. What's he going to do? Where's he going to go? Well, again, he is warned in a dream. Warned in a dream. You're not going to live in Bethlehem. You're not going to be famous as the father of the Messiah. You're not going to be the one who raises the, the heir to the throne of David in the city of David. He is warned in a dream to go to Galilee. I'm trying to think of a city to compare it to without, by offending the fewest possible people in the room. Bly? <laughs> or people, you know, somebody just from Bly has just stormed out. God has commanded him to go live where there is no 3G coverage, 4G coverage, 5G is a dream. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no Starbucks. There is nothing. You go to Nazareth now, it's a bustling metropolis. We were just there a couple of weeks ago, but when Joseph moved there, it was, it was nothing. It was a place you really would go to live so if you didn't want to get found because nobody would know where it is. You live in where? One guy said it this way. I think he was in the Bible. He said, Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Think people go there to hide from the law? So being warned in a dream, he withdrew. And verse 23, what's he say? And he went. He went to a city called Nazareth, a city he was familiar with, a city that he and Mary had lived in. But likely he was hoping that he wouldn't have to live in again. And now he finds himself in a backwater, backwoods, unknown, insignificant town where work is going to be sparse, where making a living is going to be meager, but where he will be able to live somewhat anonymously, and he obeys, not knowing what future he held. We know his future. He disappears from the story. He's going to show up in Luke until Jesus is 12, and they lose track of the Son of God in Jerusalem, not a good move parent-wise, and then Joseph's gone. His part in the story is over. Never spoken of again. Never mentioned in any of the Gospels after Jesus is 12. Never mentioned in the book of the Acts. Not mentioned at all in any of the epistles. We have no idea what happened to him. We don't know if he lived and walked away from faith in the Messiah. We don't know if he died during Jesus' upbringing. We have no idea. 
What we do know during this time is he shows us what it looks like to recognize the plan is the plan of God. The question for us as individuals is not what does safety look like. The question is what does humble faithfulness look like even if obedience is moving into the unknown. Even if obedience is moving from Egypt where you're settled and have a life back to Judea where it's dangerous and now to Nazareth where you don't matter. And Joseph shows what humble faithfulness looks like by showing us it's not his story. If this story was a story of Joseph, it wouldn't be worth reading. It's a story of the Messiah and how one person had an opportunity to be a part of what God was doing to bring forgiveness, and this one person, unlike I would say most other people in the Bible, just simply obeyed. The Lord gave him a command. Here we have, we've looked at four commands the Lord gave him, and in every instance in this passage, the next sentence was Joseph obeying. He went, he rose, he rose, he went. Joseph obeyed, even though it was costly, even though it was disruptive, and even though he didn't know what the future held. Why did he do it? Because he knew the Messiah was here. And that's where his hope was. Not in merely his son that he had adopted, but rather in the Messiah who would bring forgiveness of sins. This whole story, and really Matthew is this way, especially at the beginning of Matthew, it's designed to show us that Christ's birth is intended to fulfill all the prophecies of the Messiah of the Old Testament. That's why over and over again, at least five, maybe six times, we see in the beginning of Matthew, this phrase, this happened in order to fulfill prophecy because this is God's plan, his story, his purpose to bring salvation from sin through his son, Jesus. And Joseph shows us how we answer this question. How do we answer this question? What's my part? What's my part in this story? My prayer would be for anyone who calls Jesus Lord that we would ask ourselves that question. Since Jesus is Messiah and he comes to save sinners through his death, burial, and resurrection, what's my part in this grand story about the redemption of the world through Jesus? Let me just suggest our part is humble faithfulness through costly obedience, through disruptive obedience, and even through blind obedience. Let me give you just a couple of examples and then we'll close. Costly obedience. Sometimes to obey the Lord, we have to go without what we want. Sometimes to obey the Lord, we have to go without what we want. You can't worship God through obedience and always get what you want. I don't have a nice way of saying that. I don't know that that's too mean now that I think about it. That's, that's nice. But here's what, what we want to do is we want to obey the Lord while also getting everything we want. Now, by God's grace, and because he's so nice and generous, oftentimes we get what we want. Isn't that cool? And I'm great with that. I love it when I can obey the Lord and also get the things I want. That's fantastic. I'm down with that. However, we must recognize if we look at what God was doing in the life of Joseph, Sometimes obedience is costly. Sometimes we have to make a decision between having what we want and humble faithfulness to the Lord. My prayer would be in that moment, we would be so satisfied in Jesus, we would be glad to go without in order to have obedience to the Lord. 
Disruptive obedience. Sometimes to obey the Lord, we have to experience extraordinary inconvenience. Sometimes to obey the Lord, we have to experience extraordinary inconvenience. Obedience like Jesus, if we look how Jesus obeyed the Father by submitting himself to the cross, obedience like Jesus by its very nature is sacrificial and other-focused. Somebody asked Jesus one time, what are the most important commandments? And Jesus answered something like this. I don't have it memorized. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We'll take the first one, the second one, not so much. So what does humble faithfulness through disruptive obedience mean? It means we wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, I look around the room and it's filled with neighbors. What does it look like to love these people the same way I love myself? What does it look like to be like my Savior Jesus and put the people in my home and my neighborhood and my work ahead of me? What does it look like to put the priority on their needs, wants, and desires, on their priorities over and against my own priorities? That's when we go to God, and much like Moses, and we say something like, God, have you met these people? This command is a little bit out of line. Certainly, you had good neighbors in mind when you made that command. Have you met my neighbors? That's not what it is. Obedience like Jesus, especially when we show love to others, is by its nature sacrificial and other-focused. Sometimes to obey the Lord, we have to experience extraordinary inconvenience. Not always, sometimes. Sometimes obedience to the Lord is sketchy. That is, sometimes to obey the Lord, we have to do what we know is right, even though it doesn't make sense. Faith says we trust that God knows better. This will become more and more the case if it isn't already as the world around us sees things differently from how relationships are navigated to what morals and values look like and when compared with God's idea of righteousness, faith says we trust God knows better even when everything around us tells us God doesn't know what he's talking about. So obedience to the Lord, we have to do what we know is right even though it doesn't make sense. Faith says we trust that God knows better than us about what ought to be. We read the Bible, recognize what God is like, recognize what God says is good, and then what God says is evil, and we say that which is good in God's eyes is good for me, that which is evil in God's eyes is evil for me, and faith says God knows better than we do. Finally this, we'll close with this. When we think about Jesus, our Savior, the one who gave his life up that we might have forgiveness of sin when we trust in him, to obey the Lord rightly, to have obedience, humble obedience, the way we see exemplified in Joseph's life, the only way for that to be possible is to be able to look at our life and say, my life is not about my story. My life is, is what can, how does, how does my life fit into what God is doing through Christ? So if my life or your life has to be about you and your dreams and your hopes, it will always be uh, very difficult and have a lot of conflict built into it to obey what God is doing because obedience will always be a, a tension between what God wants and what I want for my life. The way in which we get to the place where obedience becomes a, an element of our worship through humble faithfulness is when we finally recognize it's not about my life. 
It's, it's not about what my hopes and dreams are. The question is, what part do I have to fill in the bigger and better story of Jesus? Let me just give you a, a, a thought experience, experiment sort of thing. Um, just pre- pretend for a minute, all of your hopes and dreams, I don't know what they are. Maybe you want a puppy. Maybe your dreams are simple. All of your, what if they all came true? I mean, for some people, this happens, it seems, right? And that's, that's great. But let's just imagine. Let's just, I, I mean, and I, I know I'm going to be rude, but that's okay. It's my spiritual gift. Let's just imagine whatever your things are, whatever you say, you know what? If my life went this way, A, B, C, and D, I would say that's a home run. Everything went right. I just want you to think about that life, whatever that life is. And, and certainly you've had those thoughts. I would hope you do to some degree. And you say, if everything went that way I want, here's what life would look like. Here's the question. When you think of all that there is, all that God has created in the world, and then all that God has created for all of eternity, and the fact that we will live forever, just be objective, how great is that? So say everything you wanted happened 10,000 years from now. I'm just, just being honest. Merry Christmas. Will it matter? Will it matter? I mean, if we're, if, if, it, if we're honest, it doesn't matter how hard we hit the ball out the park. Our best stuff is not going to matter a thousand years from now. The only reason we're talking about Herod the Great today is why? Jesus was born when he was around. Congratulations, Herod. That's it. Nobody talks about Herod for any other reason other than he was crazy and he built some stuff. So the question is, do you want to be a part of something that will be glorious for all of eternity? I hope your answer is yes. Do you want to be a part of something where you say, I filled a role. God called me to humble faithfulness to be a part, a small part, but a part, if you can believe it, of something that will have glory and majesty for all of eternity. If you want a piece of that action, Jesus says yes. It's called humble faithfulness. Through inconvenient obedience, costly obedience, even blind obedience, just as we see Joseph doing. We get to be a part of the bigger and better story that Jesus came to save all of humankind from their sin. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you came to die for sinners like us. We thank you, God, that while we were still sinners, you died for us, that you did not wait till we deserved it to bring your redemption. God, we thank you for the work you did by your power through Joseph that we can take a few minutes and look at what you did in his life and have it challenge our own hearts to wonder what humble faithfulness through obedience looks like for us today. God, I would pray that you would move us with such deep affection for Jesus that we would come to the place where we say, you know what, I want my life to be about him. Because I want the the story of my life to matter because it's connected to something bigger than me. God, I pray that you would give us the ability to open our hands and let go of the tight grip we have on the things of this life that we hope will bring us meaning. And instead, Lord, we would grip tightly to Jesus and the power of his glory to save sinners like us. 
Father, I'd also pray for those who are here today who don't know you, that we, as we work our way through Advent, remembering again of the glory of Christ's birth and his life and his resurrection, I would pray this Christmas would be one that they would celebrate as forgiven sinners. That even in this moment, you would move in their hearts by your spirit to trust Jesus to forgive their sins. Because that's, that's why you came, to save sinners. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has come to save and redeem sinners like us and that you not only save us, you gave us a part to play in your grand plan to save humankind. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with the song?